One of the things that the brain teaches us is that you don't need high precision to get to intelligence. This is an aptly put statement by today's guest on the Tech Emergence podcast, uh, Dr. Bruce J. McClellan, who's a researcher and professor studying how uh, our understanding of the mind can inform our understanding of how we can build artificial intelligences. In this particular episode, he speaks to how other fields like neurotechnology and psychology and even philosophy uh, can influence the development of artificial intelligence and how, in fact, they already have, as well as how the understanding of the mind has, in some ways, brought back the use of analog computing. If you're, un if you're unfamiliar with the distinctions between analog and digital, Bruce breaks it down in uh, fantastic clarity in this particular interview as well. So without further ado, let's roll right in. So Bruce, in the domain of neural information processing, sort of understanding how the, the mind processes information, um, where, where in your mind have we made the biggest sort of leaps and bounds in terms of an understanding of, of, of neural information processing in the last 10 years? So have there been any particular fields or frontiers uh, where we've, we've really had a tangibly better grasp of what the mind is actually up to when it's processing? Well, I think there's been a lot of progress in um, uh, understanding some of the theoretical underpinnings of neural information processing. Uh, a lot of this work, uh, a lot of the, the work that's in sort of in the news now, uh, Google and other companies making big progress on, on uh, deep learning systems and so forth, a lot of this work was originally done mid-1980s and progressing through the mid-1990s. And, uh, you know, really a lot of the fundamental ideas were uh, discovered and tested at that time. And a lot of the progress since then has been largely because we have faster computers, cheaper computers, yeah. uh, graphics processing units, things like that, that allow us to to uh, simulate much larger neural nets than was done in the, in the past. Uh, the other thing uh, that has, has, I think, been, um, well, there's several other things. One is there's been much more dialogue between neuroscientists uh, and the progress in neuroscience and um, people that are working on artificial intelligence. I, you know, there, there was a, a time, again, mostly prior to the 1980s, the mid-1980s, when artificial intelligence researchers said, well, we don't need to know about the brain. You know, that, that it's equivalent to a universal Turing machine or basically equivalent to a general purpose computer. And so we don't need to know the details of what's going on in the brain. And um, there's that idea is still around a little bit, but I think that we really, most people now recognize that we do need to understand the brain if we're going to achieve uh, uh, artificial intelligence comparable to what humans have or even, even other mammals. Um, what else? Well, there's been uh, a rebirth of interest in analog computing, which is basically what the brain does. Um, How do you I mean that, out of curiosity, a, re a resurgence of interest? In, in what ways or in what fields? Well, in, in particular, in uh, uh, analog electronics. Um, I think uh, Carver Mead, who was one of the people that really laid some of the foundations for our VLSI digital uh, circuitry, uh, back in the late 1980s, said the future of electronics is an analog VLSI. And in particular, he was saying that because his studies of the brain and how it processes information had indicated that the brain is pro primarily 
an analog information processor. And uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, some, some technical, uh, the um, analog processing of information is more efficient than digital processing of information. I mean, every, we, we're, we're so um, enchanted now by, by the flexibility and, of course, the speed also of digital technology. Uh, but the trade-offs are different. And when you look at something like the brain, which uses components that are orders of magnitude slower than, than the transistors in our, in our current technology, but yet is still able to do things that we cannot do very well with our technology. And, and part of the reason is that it's using low-precision analog computing, but at a massively parallel scale. So I think um, over the past decade or so, there's been increasing recognition of that and therefore a rediscovery of some of the value of analog electronics. So there's been some major programs uh, from the Department of Defense, uh, but also um, in um, the semiconductor industry to start uh, sort of reinvigorating uh, the investigation of analog electronics. And a lot of that has been inspired by uh, brain-oriented computing in general. And, and just as a, a little bit of a primer, I know some of the folks tuned in, I, I'm certainly, I couldn't do a, a great textbook definition here. Um, digital versus analog electronics, what, what are, what's sort of the baseline that makes that different? How do you describe one? How do you describe the other? Um, just, just so we can get an understanding of what that, that gestalt is. Well, in digital electronics, uh, and, and, and of course in the modern world, that means binary digital electronics, uh, basically you have two values, zero and one, and everything is represented in terms of zeros and ones. And of course these, these are physical quantities, so it may be low charge and high charge, or low current and high current, or low voltage and high voltage, um, any sort of physical system that can be in two distinct states. Yep. Uh, and that has a lot of advantages. It, it means that you only need to dis dis distinguish two distinct states. And so it's easy to um, restore data when it gets corrupted by noise, for example. Um, in analog computation, in contrast, you deal with a continuous range of values. So you may um, think about all values between 0 and 1. And so this may be represented instead of just, say, in terms of two voltage levels, you've got a whole continuum of voltage levels, yeah, say yeah. all the way from zero volts to one volt. Yep, like almost a kind of incalculable number, really, if you wanted it to be. That's right, and, it, and it's, um, now you, you do have to um, consider the fact that there can be noise and various sorts of imperfections, yep. so in fact you only have a finite amount of precision. And this is another, another important factor. A lot of the reason that uh, analog computing went into eclipse was that people wanted high-precision computation, and it's much cheaper to get high-precision computation using digital, digital technology yeah. than analog technology. Getting an extra 10% or 1% out of an analog device may be quite expensive, whereas in a digital device, you just add a few more bits of information. Got it. So um, where, where, where are we seeing analog used now? This whole notion of, of you know, zeros and ones, I think a lot of people will be like, oh yeah, I've, I am familiar with some notion there of zeros and ones. Um, in terms of analog, where has it come back? You know, is it in our cell phones? Is it is it in our video games? Is it is it in, you know, uh, these giant e-commerce stores and the internet? Where where is analog come come back into demand? Where's it being used? 
mostly at this time it's in specialized applications. So for example, if you want to do image processing uh, with very low power requirements, so an example might be a satellite or um, a space probe or something like that, or even um, uh, small uh, autonomous robots. These are cases where um, the power requirements for analog computing are much less. And the reason is, is simple, uh, that it takes fewer components to do arithmetic operations with uh, analog electronics than with digital yep, electronics. Yep. Um, so just a single uh, transistor, for example, or, or just a few transistors can do operations like addition and multiplication, whereas um, you would require dozens or even hundreds of them to do it in uh, digital computation. Got it. And all of those components take power. I mean, you know your cell phone gets hot. Sure and, does. Um, it's, it's heat dissipation now is one of the main limitations on future electronic technology. Huh. So for low power uh, applications or for where you don't have... Um, the space for a lot of components, those are places where analog technology is, is uh, being popular. So, Understood. You, know, you know, I don't know of any applications, for example, in, in cell phones or um, people have been looking at analog computation, for example, for uh, sometimes coprocessors to standard uh, computers um, where they can um, do certain computations very rapidly and um, with low power. Okay, got it. And, and and you're saying that even that was relatively rare. Maybe analog computing was um, relegated to more experiments and real application, but now we're seeing analog come back uh, because it's been, in, in maybe in some part, because it's been inspired by the work that we've done in the mind. You know, I'm curious, Bruce, and I'd actually like to get a little bit deeper into this. I think this is a fascinating topic. Um, how has, you know, this is really your space. We've had plenty of folks on board uh, are on here who tech emergence, who focus particularly in artificial intelligence. A lot of great neuroscience folks as well from all kinds of great schools. Um, neural information processing. How has the study of that field helped to inform and maybe further this analog computing? In other words, it's very curious. You know, I think to myself, okay, you know, maybe they studied how the how the brain's neurons were aligned and in particular patterns, and they said, well, you know, we could probably do that with some of our own circuits, and that that produced the capacity to do more work. Um, how, how did that happen? How did we look at the brain? How do we look at how the brain processes information and use that to inform our computing? It seems almost philosophical, but I'm sure it's explainable. Yes, so there's a number of things. Um, one of them is, as I mentioned, one of the reasons that analog computation went into eclipse is that it's expensive to get high precision computations out of it. In other words, lots of digits of, of uh, accuracy. And um, one of the things that the brain shows us is that you don't need high precision. So neurons have been estimated to operate with about one digit of precision. Um, so in other words, they're very inaccurate computing devices. But nevertheless, if you put enough of them together, and of course this is a key point, is that the brain has parallel neurons, yep. and all of our sensory systems have huge numbers of neurons. So the, what we've discovered is that if you can put a large number of low-precision computing devices together, you can in fact get um, 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 not necessarily high-precision computation in a, in, a, in a scientific sense, but you can get the sort of... Uh, precise behavior that animals exhibit. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. 
So, um, so that's one thing. We've, and we've, by studying the way the brain does represent information, for example, uh, instead of representing a value, say the uh, brightness at a particular place on your retina, by a single neuron, it represents it by a whole population of neurons, each of which are kind of sloppy. But when you look at that whole population together, you get a very accurate uh, uh, representation of what, say, the illumination is at that point. Got it. Okay, so we're, it's almost like, um, maybe this is a bad analogy, but maybe it's in some sense it fits. It's almost like, you know, if you have an injury somewhere, uh, you don't just, you know, if you, if you really want to know what's going on and they've got to they gotta cut you open, um, you're not just going to get an, an x-ray from one angle. You might get an x-ray from a couple of different angles and maybe distances or something along those lines to really sort of grasp, you know, where where is this, where is the actual issue. It sounds like the neurons in the brain, it's not one of them that's responsible for kind of where that one spot is. It's a, a bunch of them that are sort of representing where it exists in, in, in uh, you know, on your, on your retina there. It's, it's sort of a, a number of perspectives. And like you said, maybe no one of them is, you know, uh, infallibly accurate. In fact, from what you're saying, they're often sort of fallible. But, but because there's so many of them and, and they're overlapping and working together, we, we end up with a, a pretty functional yield in terms of of the location of, of that speck of light or whatever you're referring to. That's exactly right. Okay. And this has another important implication too because as we look at applying the principles of neural information processing to future systems, um, there's a pretty good reason to think that we're going to need systems with large numbers of artificial neurons. And when you manufacture those systems, if we, if we want high density. This means there's going to be a lot of manufacturing imperfections. The connections will not be exactly precise. The devices won't all work the same. Some of them won't work at all. Kind of like people. Some of them don't work the same. Some of them don't work at all. And exactly. Yeah. The neurons in our brain. So we're understanding how you can put together vast numbers of low precision, noisy, um, imperfect parts and still get very high accurate or, or very, very competent behaviors, the way we like to think of it as competent behavior, which is what animals exhibit. You know, one of the ex examples I like to show is, you know, a thing that we've all seen, a dog leaping up in the air and catching a Frisbee. Yep. You know, that's what we want our robots to be able to do. Yep. Yeah, if they can multiply four times four equals eight or do, do such with much larger numbers, that's, that's really, you know, we, we've got calculators that can do that for quite some time, but we need the Again, the functional behavior, as, as you had mentioned, and studying uh, neural information processing has helped us with that. I think, you know, and, and you'd probably agree, we have so much more room to dig into the black box of, of the mind and maybe learn even more about where we're going. And I, I guess that's maybe where Obama's brain project or the blue brain is sort of aiming to have its yield is maybe not just in, in uh, helping with neurological conditions, but, but maybe furthering our understanding of, of computation in, in so doing. Absolutely. You know, there is so much we don't know about how the brain processes information. I mean, I spend a lot of my time reading the neuroscience literature, and there's new discoveries every week. And, um, you know, one of the things that we understand some of the principles of what, what's going on, and especially in some of the sensory systems in the brain, uh, we're getting a better understanding of um, motor planning and memory and lots of different the executive systems in the brain, lots of various systems in the brain, but there's still huge gaps. And, um, you know, I think that, you know, there's, I can give you two scenarios for the future. 
One is that we're just going to keep plugging along, making slow progress on all of these things. And I think that then our artificial intelligence technology will kind of go along with that. And sometimes, you know, in the AI area, we can we get ideas about how the brain might work and we can try it out in an AI system. And if it seems to work or seems to even fail in ways like the brain does, then we can go back to the neuroscientists and say, well, look, have you thought about this? Have you, have you looked at this as a possibility? Yeah. And, and, and on the other hand, we take ideas from them and apply them. But the other thing is, you know, it's quite possible that tomorrow there could be a breakthrough in understanding the way the brain works, and we could find out there's some, some basic principles that are operating all over the brain and, uh, you know, that, that really explain, you know, a lot of what's going on. And that, of course, that would be extremely exciting, and, and we would immediately uh, start applying those ideas to artificial intelligence as well. But that's a breakthrough. You know, and yeah. Breakthroughs cannot really be predicted. No, for sure. H have we had similar, you know, I'm thinking to myself, have there been similar breakthroughs like that in other you know, scientific domains? I mean, are we talking about the, the uh, cliche E equals MC squared moments? I mean, are there other areas of science in, in other hard sciences where we've had, you know, individual kind of golden years where a bunch of legitimately ground-shaking uh, research has happened that, that has, has really kind of molded and furthered the field right off the, the bat. I can imagine it's relatively rare, but I'm trying to think to myself of some particular instances therein. Well, I think, you know, there's sort of the classic examples of, of quantum theory and, um, you know, DNA and discovering the basic sort of mechanisms yep. of genetic transformation. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yep, yep, okay. But, you know, another one, a classic example is continental drift. You know, there were that, that were just sort of facts and ideas hanging out there until uh, continental drift really got shown as an actual process taking place. And then all of these other ideas started falling into place. Um, and, and, you know, this comes back to, you know, Kuhn's, uh, Thomas Kuhn's idea of, of a paradigm shift. And one of the important points that people forget is that he said that in a new paradigm that also makes new questions possible, questions yeah. that people never even thought of asking before. For sure. You know, and in a minor way, the development of neural network technology uh, beginning in the mid-1980s primarily, of course it goes back much further than that into the 60s and before, but, but the sort of the rebirth of neural nets beginning in the 1980s, uh, it caused people to ask new questions that people that were working in traditional symbolic artificial intelligence hadn't even been asking. And asking those questions and attempting to answer them uh, has given us a lot of insights. And one of those questions was, you know, how can an animal respond in real time? Uh, typically, you know, the example I use is if you see somebody familiar, you can say hello, Dan or, or whoever, yep. in less than a second. Yeah. And so with these very slow components, you know, components operating at a, um, a rate of a millisecond or less, um, uh, nevertheless, we can respond in less than a second, uh, recognize a person's face, and coordinate this very complicated motor activity of articulating, you know, a greeting or something like that. Um, so that's really a mystery. And, you know, people really didn't ask it until the early researchers in neural networks started saying, wait a minute, how is it possible for these slow components to do this real-time response? And that's then led people to under, try and understand better uh, how information 
uh, is represented in the brain, and in particular how the control systems operate in the brain to control our, our, our bodies. And that's still, that's still uh, an ongoing area. There's of a course, lot we yeah. don't understand about how neurons control the actual physical body. That's why I used the example of the dog catching a frisbee. Yep. Um, and I think, you know, you had mentioned, you know, making new questions possible in a new paradigm. I, I suppose this is all in the process of, of, uh, hopefully shedding light on what, on what was dark. You know, I think the mind is, has, has been a black box for quite some time, consciousness a black box for quite some time. Um, and, and we're, we're beginning to understand these constituents and more and more of them. And it's, it's interesting that even, you know, developments, developments in neural nets and in, in sort of the synthetic world would shed new light on these processes that could allow us to ask new questions in our own world of wetware upstairs, um, which I think is is useful and insightful and one of the gajillions of benefits of, of uh, uh, interdisciplinary research and, and being open-minded in that way. Bruce, I, I wanted to be able to get in one more question before we wrapped here. With this being your domain of of research for quite some time, neural information processing, um, you know, you had spoken a little bit as to uh, where it's brought us now and, and where some of the previous kind of leaps and bounds have, have been. And then we got to talk a little bit about um, the actual tie between uh, neurons and, and, and computing and sort of how, how the two inspire each other. Um, where do you see neural information processing uh, really kind of showing itself in the coming decade ahead? You know, are there any areas that are showing traction that you feel optimistic will be able to uh, open up a deeper understanding of, or even have a, a meaningful application in the world of of some of this thorough understanding of, of neural information processing, whether that be in treating neurological conditions, whether that be in, in inspiring different kinds of machine intelligences. Um, in the coming decade, where do you think this this kind of NIP um, may may in fact take us? Well, I think one of the important areas is is that there's in, in uh, again, you're absolutely right that interdisciplinary studies are absolutely crucial to this business, and in fact, some of the some of the initial impetus for investigating neural networks came from philosophers rather than from AI researchers or or uh, other technicians. Good. Um, and um, so I think that that we keep, need to keep that dialogue. Uh, open and, and ongoing yep. and there's been recent progress in psychology and also philosophy on the importance of embodiment you know how the body is essentially uh doing some of the information <laughs> yeah yeah so i think you know this shows the importance of robotics as a vehicle for investigating uh artificial intelligence i mean you can make an argument that really you cannot have a genuine intelligence uh that's not in some sort of a relatively rich body. Yeah, and you know, uh, I, I've heard yeah, there's ahead. a famous philosopher too, and a French fellow, uh, and for whatever horrible reason, the name is not coming to mind, um, who, who, who I know very thoroughly sort, sort of forwards that premise that, that it may be, yeah, it, it may not be really possible at all if this is not something that can, you know, reach and grab or feel or move or, you know, turn or anything along those lines that, that can we call that an awareness? And I think it's an interesting philosophical question, but it sounds like that's what you were kind of touching on. Exactly. And in fact, I mean, in, in a sort of a broader history of, of ideas sense, a lot of the um, insights that uh, spurred a lot of the early work in neural networks came from continental philosophy. So people, uh, we, we uh, German philosophers such as Heidegger and Husserl, um, 
and uh, Marilyn Ponty, maybe you were thinking. Yes, about. Ponty. Yes, yes, yes. Yep. That's uh, that's the fellow that I, I think it had forwarded that kind of premise. So these are things you know that that um, are surprising to a lot of people, and and are not the sort of stuff that normally an electrical engineer or a computer. No, not at all. Study. Yeah. So I think that we have not fully. Um, digested and integrated some of the insights from uh, those those from continental philosophy and some of those perspectives. So um, where this from a practical standpoint though this means that where I think uh, neural information processing is going to be very critical in the future is in robotics. Um, you know we need robots that have the physical competence comparable to animals. We would, and we would like them in small packages, too. We would like to make little <laughs> artificial rats or artificial insects that can do all sorts of useful things for us. Um, now, you know, this does get into uh, ethical and political questions, oh, for too. Sure. These things could be uh, dangerous also. But I think there's also, um, from a purely scientific standpoint, but also from a practical standpoint, um, we can see lots of things, lots of applications for robots of various sizes, but in, including small robots. And to be able to implement those things, we need to be able to figure out how to put a lot of intelligence into very small packages. I mean, think of the size of a rat brain. Uh, its cortex is about the size of a postage stamp. Yeah. And, it does, um, does a lot of work, though. It does a lot of work. A lot of work. extremely intelligent. Uh, they're resourceful. Uh, they're energy efficient. And it sure would be nice to be able to make a rope robot in a similar sized package and I think that's a, a real challenge for us and this you know again is is part of the reason that we need to investigate analog electronics because um, you know we're facing limits of digital technology uh, the end of Moore's law as it's sometimes called and so um, one way around that is to get more um, um, computational um, use out of each electrical component and analog computation is one way of, of doing that yeah and right I, you yeah. know non-electronic computation is something else we need to consider so various sorts of unconventional computation that's another area of research for me um, you know we, we we don't we should not necessarily um, uh, assume that computation has to be done electronically yeah, I'd, it'd be fascinating to, to see those other theories. I'm sure there's plenty of them already out there. And it sounds like from, from your perspective, you know, particularly when it comes to robotics, um, you know, the, the, the great examples of these, uh, this kind of neural information processing that exists today are in, as you had mentioned, you know, the animals, the dog that can catch the frisbee, the, the mouse that can hide uh, you know, its, its food and save its kin and, and run and jump um, and do relatively impressive stuff, for lack of better terms, with, with a, a postage stamp size uh, cortex, um, and that maybe robotics, you know, in this whole kind of interdisciplinary uh, theme that we've been running with, maybe robotics will then in turn be able to shed new light and maybe apply new questions to how these, uh, these neural information processes actually are happening, because isn't that the way it's happening in the world? Isn't that what we're doing when we're typing and when we're writing about these things? <laughs> aren't we? Aren't we embodied in the same way? So you, it sounds like you're hoping that that that'll uh, shed some mutual light back and forth if we're able to to embody some of these theories. That's right. And if I can give you one brief example yeah, from my own research right now, um, I'm working with uh, a psychologist, uh, Daniela Corbetta. And uh, she studies how infants learn to reach and grasp objects. 
And, you know, if you think about it in terms of sort of traditional engineering, an infant arm is an, is an incredibly complicated thing. Many degrees of freedom. Uh, it's elastic. It's, um, it's got fluid-filled parts. Um, <laughs> you know, if you tried to write the equations for it, it would be impossibly uh, complicated. But nevertheless, a, a, an infant very quickly learns how to control its arm. And part of the process, we think, is this process called motor babbling, where the infants just kind of move their arms around and see what happens. And I don't mean see in a visual sense. They feel what happens. Yeah, yeah. So we're applying that in robotics. You know, how can we have a robot that does the same thing? It has to learn how to control its arms, for example. That's very uh, By possible, just moving yeah. them around randomly, uh, reading its sensor values, and uh, learning how to control its arms. So I think, you know, there's a, there's a whole area now of developmental robotics, which tries to understand how development takes place in humans and other animals, and then applies those ideas in, in robots. And so there's a, you know, there's an interchange back and forth. We can test things out and go back to the psychologist and say, well, it looks like this might be happening. Uh, you know, do you observe that in the babies? Or you can set up an experiment with babies, you know, and, and uh, track how they do these things or give them uh, different, uh, you know, objects to work with and stuff like that. And so there's a constant interchange back and forth between the uh, empirical studies of what's going on in the babies and our studies uh, with, our, with our robot. Curious, and, and you know, it's it's interesting because, you know, folks like Ben Gertzel, who've, who've been on the, the show in the past, have, you know, talked about how when we think about the mind, we think about how amazing an infant mind is in, in terms of its ability to, you know, recognize faces or, or whatever the case may be. And, and now we're, you're mentioning the, the impressiveness of sort of a, an infant's motor capacities and sort of it, its, its ability to sort of um, develop and learn from from just moving around and just, just, you know, again, like you said, reading sensor values. Of course, a child isn't necessarily doing that exactly, but to some degree sensing it's, uh, you know, where, where the pressures are and what does what. You know, when I think this way, does my arm shoot out this way, whatever the case may be. So hopefully some of that will be able to inspire robotics and shed some light back on the work that you're up to with understanding of, 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 uh, of neural networks and neural information processing. So, Bruce, I, I sincerely appreciate you being able to share your insights uh, here on Tech Emergence. If people want to learn a little bit more about what you do, I, I know this rabbit hole probably goes pretty deep, um, where can they go to learn about you? And then secondly, um, where do you recommend online if people are interested in, in neural information processing, neural nets? You know, you're digging into a lot of the hard research sometimes. Are there any places online where a layperson can kind of get up to snuff on this stuff? So yourself and then maybe a recommended resource for, for learning more. Well, um People can find me pretty easily um, on on the web, Googling my name. Yep. I'm at the University of Tennessee at Knoxville, and, and so you can go to uh, the university's website as well. Um, that's probably the easiest thing rather than, than me trying to give you Yeah, it is. It's, it's easier to just Google your name. Yeah, that's, that's how I did it. And um, resources, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's it's a, a toughie, question. huh? <laughs> um, there's, I would say... You know, there's, there's books. There's a lot of neuroscientists that are writing semi-popular books nowadays. Candell um, uh, has written one that I can think of, um, but lots of other people too. And um, I would just say, you know, watch for those neuroscience books that um, uh, are intended for a general audience. And, um, you know, you can get them, of course, as e-books. But... Um, 
they're a really good resource because those people are trying to make this material understandable um, uh, to a wider audience. Um, Got it. Okay. Well, that might be a reasonable place to start. If, if you end up thinking of any particular books, you could let us know or shoot me an email afterwards. I can include them or, or what have you. But, but I, I think, yeah, it likely is difficult to find uh, maybe too much kind of academically kosher but layperson digestible uh Neuro, you know, information around around uh, neuroscience. A fellow like yourself is digging pretty deep into kind of the more the more hard science journal side of things. So I think a nice waypoint might be get yourself into some books. You had mentioned Candell uh, and any other authors that you think are worthwhile. Well, um, you know, one um, I know you've had her on as uh, one of your podcasts, but uh, Patricia Churchland. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, is uh, has written a number of uh, worthwhile books from a. Um, philosophical perspective but highly yeah. informed by neuroscience yep. and so I, I think her books are good as well uh, she was very much involved in in sort of the rebirth of interest in neural nets and so she's uh, very aware of the issues um, well that's that's a good enough jump start we can <laughs> we can yeah. hang it there Bruce I, I appreciate you kind of yeah no for sure if you, if you come up with any others that's great I just I know that our folks are you know we only have so much time on the show but there's so much uh out there to learn, and if, if I think a lot of the time, in addition to sh you know shining a light for the folks that are tuned in, you know, with the, the great guests that we have here, some of it is also opening up doors as to where to go and do their own homework. So hopefully, some people have gleaned some ideas to go and do that. Bruce, thank you again for being here on the Tech Emergence Podcast today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Dan. I re I really enjoyed it. And that wraps up this episode on the Tech Emergence Podcast. Thanks for being here. And remember to subscribe on iTunes to stay on top of the latest news breaks, researcher perspectives, and entrepreneur interviews in artificial intelligence, neurotechnology, and more. And we want to hear from you as well. So be sure to leave a review on iTunes, which are always appreciated, or contact us directly at info at techemergence.com. And remember, all of our entrepreneur interviews and interviews with top researchers from around the world, from Stanford to Oxford and beyond, can be found right on our main site at techemergence.com. Remember to sign up for the newsletter while you're there. So with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Figella signing off, and I'll see you next week.